You know, I, we wanted to sing that song um, for a couple of reasons. I want to offer some insight to that for a moment because it, it, it's got a unique sound to it. It's got a unique lyrics to it because what creates that distinctiveness of that song is that it carries a unique message. Uh, it's a song that really calls our attention to the curse. Uh, you don't typically find songs that are often written about the curse, but that one really kind of grabbed us because that's obviously the, the focal passage for us today. And the message that we see in a song like that is that the story of this curse, it has this impact. It, it, it has this ripple effect. It's more than just some ancient story, but that the problem that we see unfold was not just reserved for Adam and for Eve or for their children or their children's children, but that the problem of the curse extends to you and me. And we live in that reality even today. And so how do we make sense of it? How do we understand it in light of the cross and in light of the gospel? Well, that's our hope today, right, is that we can venture into, once again, an understanding of some of the seriousness that we see in Scripture, but be awakened to something greater, be awakened to the hope that we have in Christ. And, and what I know as we prepare to, to journey back into this text is that regardless of any amount of research, regardless of any amount of study or preparation, the one thing that truly helps us understand that is His Spirit and His Spirit alone. And so let's pray for His Spirit to open our hearts and minds to the depth of what He wants us to see. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather together and worship as a body of believers to, to enjoy what it means to fellowship with the saints. And I pray, God, that in this moment now, that as we hear the proclamation of your word, that your spirit would accompany it and it would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you want us to hear, the things that you want us to see, and it would result in change. It would result in transformation. It would result in us becoming more like Christ. And so be with us now, Father. We submit this time to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. As we begin today, I have a confession. This may come as a shock to you all, but believe it or not, I have never been on trial. Okay, I know that may sound surprising given my sketchy past and the fact that I grew up in a town like Abilene, Texas, known for its high crime rate and hard knock neighborhoods. Um, but I have. I, I've never been on trial. I've avoided the inside of a courtroom, thankfully. But I have had those moments in life where I feel like I've experienced the kind of like intense moment of question and answering, those kind of interrogations where I had to defend my alleged crimes, right? Like, for example, when I was four or five and I allegedly uh, was beginning to steal a piece of Super Bubble Bubble Gum at the local convenience store down the street, Right? When I was allegedly caught in this act, the clerk behind the counter jolted me into concern with this question, what do you think you're doing, boy? At which point I allegedly put the gum back and ran out of the store with tears filling my eyes out of fear of what might happen. Or the time in sixth grade where I allegedly put gum in Cameron Cook's hair. There's a weird correlation with gum in these stories. I don't know why. But she was apparently um, in this situation, and as I explained to the vice principal on this particular day, in the midst of his intense questioning, I said, well, there's a perfectly good explanation for this. I was simply walking around with my gum in my hand, because that's what you do after you've chewed gum for an extended amount of time. And then Cameron just happened to be kneeling down to tie her shoe when I was walking by and accidentally tripped and just fell, and the gum fell into her hair. Very plausible explanation, if you ask me, which my best friend, Elliot Strader, vouched for me in that moment, which 
freed me up from any further interrogation, no punishment on that moment, or the many times that my mom would sit down and quiz me, right? Where were you? Who was there? What were you all doing? When did you get home? All these different questions. And, and as I would try to give an explanation to her, she always closed with that word of warning. I'll find out, Jeremiah. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week, but I'll always find out. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you. You know, I mean, she just had this way with words. And so I feel like I understand a little bit of the drama of being interrogated, right? I feel like I can empathize with that on some level. And, and I think that's part of why I said with, to you all last week that I kind of grew up with the fascination with, with law, with wanting to even consider being a lawyer. And I think part of what added to that fascination was that I feel like there's a borderline obsession in American pop culture with the drama that unfolds in a courtroom, right? And I was thinking about this this past week, but then I went back and, and looked at it and thought, well, maybe obsession is a bit overstated, but we definitely had two decades or so that were really concentrated in the 90s and the early 2000s where it felt like almost every TV drama took place either in an emergency room or a courtroom, right? Which is why my generation typically wants to be a doctor or a lawyer. And so we would see all these things unfold and there was this fascination with how these things might take place. And, and yet, as I realized it was really just concentrated to kind of the 90s and the early 2000s, I realized, well, there's a whole generation of people that are being deprived of the, the amazing and alluring nature of the courtroom drama. And so I thought it might benefit all of us this morning if we could stop for a moment and imagine what it would be like. What would it be like to be on the front row of a courtroom drama as we see it unfold? And I would imagine that the first thing that would really capture our attention is not something that we would see but maybe something we would hear right that as the judge takes his or her seat at the bench the first thing that would capture our attention would be the sounds of law and order and a hush falls over the crowd and in this drama we begin to see it unfold and we look to the lawyer who is the hero in this story the protagonist one the one who is going to fight for justice and this young lawyer charismatic and personality, also known for his inexperience in this moment, but there's something alluring about him, something that we just can't help but listen to, probably that southern charm and that southern accent, his ability to stand in front of the jury in the midst of a closing argument and say, now I need to tell you all a story, and when I do, I want you to close your eyes. Go ahead now, close your eyes, and people will do it because of his charm and also because he slightly looks like Matthew McConaughey, and you just do whatever he tells you, or maybe we choose another hero. Another young lawyer who's also charismatic and also passionate and inexperienced, but this young lawyer has a certain confidence, and we see him grow in the midst of this courtroom drama unfolding. And in this climactic moment, he looks at the witness, the witness that we know is actually the villain, right? We know it's the, the antagonist. He's the one who is responsible for this murder that has transpired. We know that because we're in the audience, but no one else in the courtroom has figured it out except the suspicions of the young lawyer. And so after a line of direct questioning, this young lawyer confronts the witness. And the witness, with frustration and defiance, looks back at the lawyer and says, you want answers? And unmoved, the young lawyer looks back and says, well, I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls. And those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You. You, Lieutenant. I could keep going, y'all. I really could. I could do the whole thing. So good. I love the courtroom drama, right? And it's not just because of what we've seen play out in some of these famous movies like A Few Good Men and A Time to Kill. If you didn't catch those references, go home and do your homework, okay? But it's more than what we see play out. 
I would argue that there's something innate within each of us. And that's the desire for justice. There's something that wants us to see that affirmation of what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is evil. This is part of what takes us back to the discussion last week. Right, this desire that we all carry to make some determination of right and wrong, good and evil, and justice affirms that. And so we're compelled to these stories. Well, the reason I go to that sort of elaborate introduction this morning is because that's really what we see next unfold in Genesis chapter 3. We see this moment of interrogation, this cross-examination that leads to a verdict of guilt or innocence. And that's what we all long to hear. And what we have a chance to to really consider with greater intentionality this morning is a glimpse of the divine justice that God provides. And in that, we also find an opportunity to be swept away by his divine mercy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Let's continue the discussion. Now as you're turning there, let me offer a quick recap of last week. Last week was hard. Last week was a discussion of the tragedy and part of what we tried to achieve last week was to get this understanding that this is more than just breaking some arbitrary rule of eating a fruit right that the fall that took place was incredibly egregious because what it did was it distorted the character of God it distorted the word of God and what ultimately led to its happening was this temptation to seize power away from God and claim it as our own That we wanted to be the ones to determine good and evil for ourselves. It was a terrible act of rebellion. And so part of the reason that I went to great lengths to explain how those deceptions can work their way out in multiple arenas. Whether it's the political arena, the personal arena, or even the spiritual arena. Was for us to see that all of us fall short. All of us fall victim to that sort of sinful way that if we ever conjure up our own version of a litmus test of morality of good and evil it falls short no matter which one you claim loyalty to and so the only response is to return to his version of good and evil not our own and so we discussed that last week but part of what we're gonna have to look at now is that if that is truly what happened if that's the extent of the hall, of the fall well then what are the consequences and, and that's probably where I want to begin today before we read the text is to get comfortable with the idea that there are consequences for sin and we don't often like to talk about that right in in other arenas we do appreciate the idea of consequences we like to see it in our legal system we like to see it at work or at school or in other arenas but you know where we struggle to talk about consequences church because a lot of times we want to come here and we don't want to have judgment right we want freedom we want grace we want mercy all those things are good but we have to recognize the consequence for sin is biblical foundational teaching right that is a part of reality it's even a part of forgiveness right consider the story of david right david who was a murderer and an adulterer and when he's confronted for his sin through the prophet nathan what does nathan say the the lord has removed your sin but the sword will not leave your house and the consequences for david's sin He loses a son, and the kingdom is divided. Listen, you can be forgiven, but if we make poor choices, there will be consequences in this life. So we have to give thoughtful consideration to that, and we have to do it in order to fully understand 
the amazing picture of the gospel, right? Because if we were going to summarize the gospel this morning, we can turn to Romans 6.23 as a, as a great succinct statement. What is Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will never fully appreciate the free gift of eternal life if we don't first sit under the weight of the fact that the wages of sin is death. The moment, the minute we begin to diminish the consequence of sin, we diminish the need for the cross. And so today, we need to really give thoughtful consideration to it. And so I want to read this text, but I want to read it in segments, okay? I want to walk us through this journey, this interrogation almost, this verdict that God hands out as a result of his divine justice. But the first place I want us to begin is this transitional statement that we find in verse 8. After this fall, after their eyes are open to all that they've done, here's what we see. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Several things I want to point out about this. First is the, the reference to the Lord God. Now this again is, is noteworthy in this text because like I told you last week, in the exchange between the serpent and the woman, every reference to God was different than everything we had seen in the first two chapters of Genesis. More than 20 times in the first two chapters of Genesis, every reference to God is Yahweh Elohim. And that reference to Yahweh reminds us that this God is a, is a covenantal God, is a personal God, is a relational God. But when the serpent and the woman spoke of him, they dropped the Yahweh and only referenced Elohim. They distorted his character. And here we have now in verse 8 a return to Yahweh Elohim. The fullness of his name, a reminder of the fullness of his character. And here's why that's significant. Here we have the worst moment of humanity's existence in the fullness of their sin and of their rebellion and yet God's character remains consistent he is still a God of promise he is still a covenantal God God cannot betray himself and where that gives us comfort today is to recognize that even in our worst moments those moments when we turn our back on him and run in total rebellion he will not betray his promises and love the glimmer of hope and mercy just that reference gives us in verse 8 what's really startling about verse 8 though is not so much that the lord god is walking through the cool of the garden as neat as that description sounds what's more startling is the response of the man and the woman so they hide behind the trees you can't have a more drastic change in the nature of their relationship. All the goodness of creation being gifted to them, living in perfect harmony and unity, and now in the midst of knowing that their creator is near, they run and hide among the trees. A couple of things I want to point out about that. First is the theme of trees that we find in these first few chapters of Genesis. Notice how they constantly represent and are somewhat indicative of the relationship of the creator to the created. Right, they represent the promise. Right, you're free to eat from any fruit of the trees. They're a symbol almost of God's provision, of his care, of his love, of his covenant. And yet the tree is also representative of their sin. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil that led to the downfall. And now the tree has become a refuge for their shame. A place that they think they can hide. The tree, often symbolic of the nature of the relationship between the creator and the creator. 
And yet what we really need to acknowledge for a moment is the absurdity of this attempt. Right? That they think they can hide from God. You, you can't hide from the creator. Right? It reminds me of those moments in my, my oldest son's in, uh, early phases of life when he was probably three or four and beginning to teach him the concept of hide and go seek. Right? And, and trying to explain to him how he hides. And in his mind, the only way you really needed to hide was that if I can't see daddy, daddy can't see me. And so his hiding often just resulted in him laying his face on the ground. You know, he's in like broad daylight. And I'm like, dude, you're going to have to get way better at this. Or your friends are going to just ridicule you. You know, I mean, he just doesn't get it. But that's the absurdity of what we just read. Right? Well, if I don't see God, he won't see me. How many of us in here today are hiding from God or trying to hide from God? Right, we hide from God in a lot of different ways, right? We, we think, well, maybe if I just avoid him, if I don't read the text, if I don't, if I don't, be, if I don't uh, you know, spend time around other believers or go to church, whatever it is, then maybe I won't have to confront all these things that I'm doing. Maybe we hide from God by actually coming to church. Right, if, if I just do enough good things or in the right places at the right seats at the right moments, then maybe that will overshadow all these other things I'm trying to pursue. How many of us are in here today under the delusion that you think you can hide from God? It's absurd. And yet that's the response of the man and the woman, and that's what's startling. And so what does God do when we seek to hide from him? Listen to how the passage continues, starting in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Stop there for a moment. Here's the interrogation. Here's the cross-examination in the defense. It's interesting and yet noteworthy in my mind that God only addresses them with the form of questions. Though he knows what transpired, he doesn't come with an accusation. He doesn't come with a statement. He comes with questions. Why is that? You see the line of questions? Where are you? Who told you? Did you? Have you? What is this that you have done? All these, these questions that he's asking. Now, we know that these questions are rhetorical. Right? God knows exactly what transpired. This isn't genuine curiosity. Where'd you go? He knows. So why is he asking questions? What's he trying to achieve here? What I believe is taking place here is that God is trying to get them to confess. What he wants is not just to bring a, a determination or an accusation. He wants to hear them confess what they have done. And what you and I need to learn from this line of questioning is that that is a part of our response to the sin in our lives. God desires true confession. And so a question we must ask ourselves this morning is when was the last time you truly confessed before your creator? And not just acknowledged a mistake and not just apologized for, for some mishap, but truly knelt before your creator and laid your soul bare saying this is everything within me that could be wrong this is what god is trying to accomplish where are you come out from what you're hiding from come out from your lust come out 
from your greed come out, from your denial, your depression, all these different things come out and stand before your creator and confess what's really going on. That's what he desires. But what we see in the response is that the defense is anything but a confession. We see some similarities with how both the woman and the man respond to these questions. Right? The, the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. And what does the man say? Well, the woman gave it to me, so I ate. So they admit to eating, but they don't confess. What do they do? They assign blame to someone else. Was it my fault? Was it my responsibility? And how many times is that the posture that we carry, the mentality that we cling to, right? Something goes wrong, some sin impacts on our life, and what do we say? Well, it wasn't me, right? It was their doing it was their fault if she had just loved me more at home then I wouldn't have run into the arms of lust and infidelity right if my friends hadn't been there and bought me that round or given me that drug then I would have been able to stay clean and avoid all these different pitfalls if they hadn't provoked me then I wouldn't respond with anger it's always someone else's fault that is not confession that's still hiding now what makes the the defense so alarming when you read through this passage is really the first thing that Adam says and what he implies. The woman you gave me, the one that you put here with me, this indirect statement that is implying that it's not just her fault, it's God's. What a remarkable and dangerous response that Adam is taking the bold reply to say, this is your doing. You created imperfectly. Listen to a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I think captures it so well. He says, so instead of surrendering, Adam falls back on one art learned from the serpent, that of correcting the idea of God. Adam has not surrendered. He has not confessed. He has appealed to his conscience, to his knowledge of good and evil. And out of this knowledge, he has accused his creator. You see what he's doing? Adam is using his own determination of what is right and wrong, good or evil, and he's putting God to the test saying, hey, you created imperfectly. This helper you're supposed to give me, well, she didn't help, she hindered. It's your fault. And how many times, again, do we fall victim to that mentality, right? And we cast all this blame on God for all of these injustices or these imperfections that exist in the world. It's your fault that you created in this such a way. And because you did this, I'm going my own way. It's a dangerous, dangerous position. And so what's the key takeaway in the defense that we see from the man and the woman? What we see here is that one of the tremendous um, alarming consequences for sin is an alienation from God and from others. There is a severing of relationship. There is a distancing from the one woman and the one man that they were put there to enjoy each other with. There is a separation from the creator that was there giving them these perfect gifts. The consequence of sin is that it leads you to the one place that God has already declared is not being good. It leads you to being alone. The real consequence is not that you might get a DWI or end up in jail or have to drop out of school or you lose a promotion. The real consequence is that it distances you from the closest people you love. It distances you from your creator. Before you realize that all of these decisions, all of these sinful behaviors leave you to yourself. 
completely and totally alone. Which is no wonder then when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love God, love others. Because he knows the effect of sin takes you away from both of those things. So it's a tremendous reality to what this can do, how sin can alienate us from those that are closest to us. This is why Adam says, I was afraid, so I hid. And I wonder how many of us are in here today afraid of our creator, afraid of what others might find out, afraid of how others might view us, afraid of what God might say. Can he really love me even in this? And so we run and we hide and we leave ourselves completely alone. That is the consequence. That is the sin. This is the nature of their defense. And so God listens to it, verdict, and answers this, this weak vine sin. And now it's time for the verdict. Now it's time for divine justice. In verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen? The verdict. Now let's, let's walk through this for a moment. First, what we need to understand is the nature in which we should uh, I guess, consider this story. Because what is common, especially in ancient tales, whether it's uh, Greek mythology or, or some other tribal animistic religion, is that a lot of times, right, in this story of help explain creation, right? You think about the Greek god Helios, right, in this story of how he gets on his chariot and flies across the sky from the east to the west. And this is the explanation of why the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. This is not the type of story that we have here. This is not a story that's merely trying to find a clever way to explain to us why we hate snakes. Okay, it's much, much more profound. If there has been symbolic language up to this point in this narrative, which there has, it would be incredibly unusual for it all of a sudden to stop and it just simply be about men and women and snakes. What we have here is a profound representation of our reality. The serpent represents evil, represents Satan, represents the accuser, the father of lies. Man and woman represents you and me. It is a profoundly important text. And so we need to understand the verdict and the results of what God has said, this divine justice, because it impacts our understanding of our world today. So he starts with the serpent. What does he say? Cursed are you. There's actually a play on words in the Hebrew because the, the serpent is first introduced as crafty, but in the end, he's just cursed. And what we see with the word cursed is that it actually means to inflict harm on someone. And so God is saying, there is going to be harm 
there is going to be a response to evil. There is going to be a response to the accuser, to the deceiver. I'm not going to let this go unpunished. So the serpent is cursed. And what is the description of that curse, right? That he, he slithers on his belly, eating the dust of the earth. Now this, again, is not some explanation that at one point the serpent had legs and could walk, and that's why now they crawl on their bellies. The emphasis here is twofold. Number one, that, that the serpent has to eat the dust of the earth. That phrase conjures up the idea of the severity of the curse, the totality of it, and the seriousness of it, and also the emphasis of all the days of the serpent's life. This harm that God is going to afflict on evil will be unending. It will be definitive. It will be drastic and severe. Now we also see, coupled with it, this word of enmity that is now put between the serpent and the woman. And so what we understand with this description is enmity means hostility, right? It, it means aggression, almost violence. And so now we can look at this curse and understand that part of the consequence of what happened in the fall is that now there is going to be a struggle between us and humanity and the forces of evil. There is a hostility that exists between the two. And so what we see it being rephrased as in the New Testament is, listen, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think that's important for us to understand that evil is a reality. How many times do we find the injustices in this world come glaring into our present gaze and we cast all the blame on God? Right? This is your fault that innocent people are suffering. This is your fault that there's all this death and destruction. And this, it's as if we just pretend like evil doesn't exist. And it says it right there, not because of God's creation, but because of our consequence, evil will live in hostility with man and woman. It's there. We live in a broken, evil, cursed world. And that's something we have to acknowledge if we're going to view this world correctly. Now there's more to be said here, but we need to wait and, and refer to it a little bit later towards the end. We also need to look at the verdict that's handed out to the man and the woman. And what's interesting here is that the man and woman are not actually cursed. Right? Only the serpent and only the lamb. Man and the woman still receive a punishment. Now the nature of this punishment is a distortion of roles. A distortion of how they are going to now experience the promises first given. Right? If you think about the woman, what what were the very explicit promises that were given? That, that you will fill the earth. It's the gift of family. It's the beauty of childbearing. Something that was to be celebrated. Something that was to be loved and acknowledged. Right? The, the gift of this relationship with man that would live in, in equity and in, in mutual love and adoration. As both of you fully represented the image of God. And now those promises are distorted. Now you'll experience them with pain and dissension. Right? There will be pain in childbearing. And the promise will still be there, but not without a reminder of suffering. In this relationship with your husband, you will desire him and he'll rule over you. Now there's much that we could infer from a verse like that. What is desire mean? Is it someone that just desires submission to a husband, to have a husband, to be independent from a husband? What does rule mean? Is it polite? Is it kind? Is it abusive? There's a lot of ways to infer this. Here's the point. 
there is tension and disruption between man and woman. The gift that God originally intended has now been distorted. And that's why I said it two weeks ago when we talked about the creation of Eve. When we think about the tension that we feel between man and woman and this life, the question we have to ask ourselves, does our position, do our actions exalt the curse or exalt the promise? Because when we begin to carry ourselves in such a way that we exhibit resentment towards the other gender for whatever reason, for how they've treated us, for what they've said, we're exalting the curse. When we begin to abuse the other gender and we, we try to rule over them and subject them and we cloak it like we saw this past week with that terrible story of what's taken place in the church and people that have diminished the role of women to their own benefit, it exalts the curse, not the promise. And so all of us need to return to what God initially intended, which is this appreciation for sameness but distinction that fully represents the image of God. We view and we speak and we connect with one another in a way that affirms the promise, not the curse. Now, the distortion of role for the man is all connected to the land. Now, here, interestingly, the land is cursed again. Here we have something that is going to receive harm from the creator. And you can see how that curse is described. It's going to produce thorns and thistles rather than this lavish seed fruit bearing creation that you saw in the first two chapters. Right now, we're going to see that it's by the sweat of your brow that you're going to have to work and labor in this land that was initially given to you, right? That promise to rule it, subdue it, work it, well, now you're going to experience it through pain and discomfort and toil. It's a distortion of the promises. And so part of what you and I can see is that the ripple effect of the curse that extends to you and me is to recognize that creation itself has been altered. Right, Romans 8 explains it incredibly well. Right, the, the creation groans in eager expectation so that it can be set free, liberated from its bondage of decay. So even in the midst of all the glory and the grandeur of what we can see in this world and in creation, we can also observe things aren't right. Things are off, drought, famine, natural disaster. This isn't the way it should be, and it creates hopefully within us a longing for a new heaven and a new earth. But things have changed. The nature of the promise has been disrupted. An interesting theme again emerges. The theme of eating. Have you noticed that in the first three chapters of Genesis, eating is also something that somewhat represents uh, the relationship between the creator and the created. Right? Again, it represents the promise. You are free to eat from the trees, from the fruit. It represents sin. Because you ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now it's even found in the curse. You will eat out of painful toil and labor. Eating always somehow re revealing to us the nature of a relationship between us and the creator. Which with this as a backdrop perhaps gives us a little bit more understanding as to all these laws that are ultimately given to describe clean and unclean and feast and fast. That help us have a greater understanding of the relationship that we should have with God. Eating playing a significant role in revealing the nature of that relationship. But the brutality and the weight of the curse is found in that final statement. To dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death. Here, God's word of warning is brought to fulfillment. You eat, you will die. To dust you are, to dust you will return. 
And we know that this is not just reserved for man, but man and woman for all of us. And one of the things that you and I need to, to grapple with when we consider Genesis 3 and the effects of the curse is to recognize how it impacts our existence. See, I believe a fundamental teaching that we see, not just through this passage, but through the fullness of Scripture, is that you and I are born evil. Right? We're, we're, we're born broken. We're, we're born uh, with, with these impulses that cannot be trusted. And if you want to question that, spend time with a child, right? I mean, they're cute. They're sweet and all, they are not innocent, right? They show up here screaming and crying and selfish and it's crazy, right? You want another way to understand that we are all subjected to the curse that took place here? It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter your culture, your worldview. All of us face death. Death comes for us all. No one can escape. It is the resounding verdict of the justice of God for sin. The wages of sin is death. It cannot be escaped. Every single one of us knows that it relentlessly pursues us. You want to know that you live in a broken world? Look no further than the fact that death is a painful reality for us all. And so we see the effects of the curse. What we need to see and sit under the weight under this morning is the fact that this curse extends to you. And it extends to me. And so how do we respond? Well, where I want to leave us this morning is not just sitting under the weight of divine justice, but to look through these verses, to look through these words, and also discover divine mercy. Because what I hope this does for us is to recognize that if we read this correctly, we have to admit there's nothing we can do about it. We can find transformation in this world. We can find people changing, but you can't undo the curse. You, you can't change pain and childbearing. You can't change the tension between relationships. You can't change the toil that it takes just to live and exist. You can't change the fact that death is a reality. So when we stop and truly consider the impact and the effects of the curse, it should awaken our need to divine mercy. We need a Savior. And what's beautiful about this is that even in the midst of the curse, we discover Yahweh Elohim. We see the beauty of his promise. You first get a glimmer of it going back to the verdict that's handed out to the serpent. For he talks about this enmity and then what does he say? There will be enmity between you and your offspring and the seed of the woman. You will strike his heel and he will crush your head. And in that moment, we have this word, this promise of hope that there will be a day where evil and death and the accuser and all those things will be crushed by the seed of a woman. And this is what begins to make it so remarkable, right? Is that now when we long for that day and we thirst for that day and we hear of this Jesus this Jesus who was fully divine and yet born of the seed of a woman we get a sense that perhaps this is the moment and this Jesus walks through this life and he begins to reveal his power his authority even yes to forgive sins and everything begins to change and the nature of our relationship to God is once again altered and we find it surprisingly once again with the meal the last 
Supper, eating bread and wine, a symbol of promise and sin. We find it again in a tree. For when Jesus is actually willing to give his life and is crucified on a tree, once again we find a tree symbolizing both life and death, changing the nature of our relationship to God. And what we see, and Paul explains to us so well in Galatians 3, is that in his death, Jesus takes all the weight of the curse off of us and onto his shoulders. Because Galatians 3 tells us that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so when he breathes his last breath and says, it is finished, and he gives his life, we see that the punishment that we deserve, the death that we deserve to die was on him. And by his wounds, we are in fact Healed, And when he is resurrected on the third day, it's that moment that we see death has, yes, been defeated. This serpent has, in fact, been crushed. You and I have hope. And this is what creates this amazing and glorious juxtaposition of divine justice and divine mercy. And Paul describes it so effectively in Romans 5. He says, listen, just as sin has entered the world through one man and death... Through this sin, in the same way that many have died by the sin of one man, how much more will God's grace be seen by those who live by the righteousness of one man? For if death reigned through that one man, how much more abundantly will we find his righteousness through Jesus Christ? Just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness results in the justification for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man that many were made sinners, now through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Amen? Amen. Divine mercy. And so we look at Genesis 3, under the weight of the wages of sin is death, but swept away by the truth that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's our response today? Cling to him. Hold on to him. Confess your need for divine mercy. Lay your soul bare and receive this king who saves you. Let us walk with the appropriate mentality that yes, in this life, our days are numbered, but we were made to walk with him. And so we know that our hope is in our redeemer. For we know that he has paid for every failing. We know that his hope is sure. And so we cling to him because we know that Christ is ours forevermore. So what's the call today, church? Come. Come and rejoice with all of your soul. Don't run, don't hide, but celebrate because his hope is sure. Fear is gone. His love is secure in your heart, in your souls, in your minds because Christ is yours. He is the reminder of God's divine mercy. Let us worship him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We marvel at who you are. And I pray, Father, that as we give great consideration once again to just the brokenness that we carry and the imperfect nature that we wrestle with and we we think about the many struggles that we have against the forces of evil and the many imperfections that we constantly have to battle, God, that in the midst of it all, we would not try to run, we would not try to hide, we would not be afraid, but we would fall at your feet 
and we would long for your mercy. Father, that our lives would be a life of worship, a life of joy, because we know that though we deserve death, you have given us life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So may he be a precious gift to us this morning, God. May we, may we savor this gift. May we steward it well. May we hold it close. May we listen to your promise rather than the curse. May we listen to your hope rather than the voices of the world. And may we rejoice with all of our soul and all of our lives because we know Christ belongs to us. For it's in his precious, mighty, and holy name we pray. Amen.